Welcome to A New History of Old San Antonio, Episode 14, Illegal Immigration. I'm Brandon Seal. I'm a city, San Antonio. Tonight I'm looking at your lovely life. General Manuel de Mier y Terran was an unhappy man. Three years before, in 1829, he had warned the Mexican government what would happen in Texas in a report from his previous year's inspection tour. In 1828, he had been appointed to lead a boundary commission to Mexico's northeastern border, charged by the new Mexican government with studying Texas and its prospects for development. On their way to the Texas-Louisiana border, however, they found the resources of the state already being actively developed, albeit not by Mexican citizens. Thousands of Anglo-American immigrants had swarmed across the unguarded Sabine River. Some had come under colonization contracts granted to men like Stephen F. Austin. Many more, however, had come illegally and squatted on the first agreeable piece of real estate that they saw. Many were industrious, some weren't, and some were frankly just debtors or criminals on the run from the law, as Mieri Terran was quick to observe. These new immigrants might be prospering and they might be populating the long empty expanses of Texas, but they seemed to have no real loyalty to the Mexican state, and most all of them disregarded the conditions which the Mexican government had placed on new immigrants, namely that they learn to speak Spanish, that they become Catholic, and that they emancipate their slaves. These little Anglo enclaves in East Texas were becoming hotbeds of political intrigue, where the men spent hours railing about their constitutional rights, forgetting sometimes which constitution they lived under. This is what so unnerved him. Not that they were English-speaking, Protestant slave owners. It's that they seemed to think that any law anywhere was an intrusion on their rights, and every tax and indignity unworthy of a free man, even if the only reason that man had anything at all was because the same government now trying to tax him had given it to him. An avowed centralist himself, it bothered Mieri Terran the way these new immigrants crammed the North American language of liberty into a Mexican Federalist package, when in his eyes, they had made little effort to actually make themselves Mexicans. These immigrants were wholly unassimilated, he believed, their only contact with Mexican society being San Antonio, who had shown its fickle loyalty to the central state back in 1813. And now, General Mieri Terran suspected, San Antonians were starting to identify more with their new neighbors than with their fellow citizens. Upon his return to Mexico City, General Mieri Terran published a scathing report about the political situation in Texas. He was convinced that Texas was in very real danger of being pried away from Mexico if something wasn't done to control its borders. And now, in the clear light of 1832, his dire predictions were coming to fruition. Anglo-Americans in Texas now numbered around 15,000 out of a total population of 18,000, and they were growing more restless by the day. And down in the center, the Federalists were winning the latest struggles for power, both at the ballot box and on the battlefield, and threatened to undo all the work that he and his centralist allies had undertaken to protect the honor of the new Mexican Republic. Let them be damned, he decided. On July 3, 1832, just a few days after reports of new Anglo unrest in East Texas reached him, General Mieri Terran fell on his sword in the same churchyard where the short-lived Mexican emperor had been executed a decade prior. Contributing to General Mieri Terran's anguish was that for a couple years, things had gone his way. The centralist faction had regained control of the Mexican government in 1830 and was also acutely alarmed by what they saw happening in Texas. Acting on his report, one of the Centralists' first acts on April 6, 1830, 17 years to the day actually after San Antonio had declared its first short-lived independence, was to proclaim all future immigration from the U.S. illegal. Further, they declared all unfulfilled impresario contracts, which was to say, almost all of them, null and void, and all lands granted under them were now subject to review. New customs agents and more aggressive local department chiefs were appointed to try to enforce these new decrees, and frankly, for the first time, to enforce Mexico's trade laws. All of this hit San Antonians like a shot out of the dark. In the words of historian Jesus de la Teja, they saw in Anglo immigration, quote, an unprecedented opportunity for Texas to rise from the depths of the poverty and backwardness in which the Mexican War of Independence had left the province, end quote. 
In just a very short time then, they had developed deep commercial ties with these new immigrants. More, they had developed an almost paternal view of these Anglo-American settlers, as people brought in upon their recommendation. In following the 1827 Coahuila colonization law, carried by San Antonio delegate and self-proclaimed Baron de Bastrop, the floodgates of Anglo-immigration had opened. Most were farmers who stopped at the Brazos or Colorado rivers. Yet a few of these continued on to San Antonio, and we should take time to meet them. Old Ben Milam was only 33 years old when he first came to Mexico to participate in the Mexican War of Independence in 1818, but he was captured and imprisoned a year later. He was eventually released and would be awarded a colonization contract in 1826, which he partnered with José Antonio Navarro to develop. He was in and out of Texas regularly, yet made San Antonio his base from that time forward. John W. Smith earned his nickname El Colorado because of his flaming red hair. El Colorado arrived in Texas in 1826 as a part of the DeWitt colony, but quickly moved on to San Antonio where he set up shop as a merchant. He married a Canary Islander, Maria de Jesús Delgado Curbelo, with whom he would have six children and eventually acquire enormous tracts of land around San Antonio and the state. Erastus Deaf Smith, though we would call him Deef Smith if we wish to remain true to the older pronunciation, was a New Yorker who lost his hearing to meningitis at a young age. He first visited San Antonio in 1817 and returned in 1822 and married into the Ruiz family. Deaf Smith became a moderately successful land speculator and rancher, allegedly being among the first to import English cattle breeds into Texas. Smith's stepdaughter, Maria, would marry Hendrick Arnold, a free black man who had come to Texas in 1826 with Stephen F. Austin's colony. John Tuig was an Irishman who came to San Antonio in 1830 and set up shop on the Plaza de las Islas, or Main Plaza. Samuel Maverick, a Yale graduate and struggling lawyer, came to San Antonio in March of 1835 and entered into land speculation and local politics. His wife, Marianne Adams Maverick, would come to San Antonio in 1836, and her diaries offer some of the best first-hand accounts of life in the city during this period. Jim Bowie was born in Kentucky, to the kind of Scotch-Irish stock that would predominate among Texas's first Anglo settlers. His father moved him and his brother first to Spanish Missouri at an early age, then to Louisiana just as it entered the Union. His father did well for himself in the timber business, but Jim and his brother developed a taste for riskier adventures, namely slave smuggling and real estate fraud. In 1827, while serving as a second to another man in a duel on a sandbar in the Mississippi River outside of Natchez, Bowie was shot twice, stabbed multiple times, and in a superhuman display of grit and strength, still managed to kill the SOB who assaulted him. Newspaper accounts of the so-called sandbar fight made Jim Bowie and the custom knife that he had plunged into his assailant's chest a legend in his own time. In 1828, Bowie first traveled to San Antonio to avoid legal problems in Louisiana. He quickly befriended Juan Martin de Veramendi, one of the wealthiest men in town and one of our old Republican champions. They offered each other mutual benefits, the San Antonian offering Bowie entree to San Antonio society and Bowie offering Veramendi valuable business contacts back in the United States. And more, Bowie and Veramendi's 19-year-old daughter seemed to have fallen in love. On April 25, 1831, Jim Bowie and Ursula Veramendi were married in San Fernando Cathedral, after which they took up residence in the so-called Veramendi Palace in town. For the next 40 years, actually, 10% of the marriages in Bear County would be between a Hispanic and an Anglo surname. Intermarriage had always been the most powerful integrator and community builder in isolated frontier San Antonio, and it continued to be an effective way for older settlers to absorb newer arrivals while still preserving the character of the town. The second most powerful tool of integration, as we've already talked about, was doing business together, and all of these men were active, entrepreneurial businessmen. And this is why, in April 1830, when the now-centralist Mexican government outlawed Anglo immigration, it was such a kick in the teeth to San Antonians of all backgrounds. The Mexican flag may have replaced the Spanish one, yet their government remained out of touch with their concerns, if not outright antagonistic toward them. Curtailing Anglo immigration, San Antonians knew, was bound to rile up the rowdier elements that had already slipped across the border. 
but worse, it threatened to take away the greatest hope of prosperity that San Antonians saw for their economy and their province. The San Antonio City Council convened in December of 1832 to decide on a course of action. The City Council had a century-old tradition of active political engagement, too active sometimes, and they didn't silence their consciences now either. On December 19, 1832, the City Council published a document known today as the Bear Remonstrance, drawing its name from the political and ancient name of the department, Bejar. Widespread support for this document in the community is evident from the fact that it was published just days before the annual election and signed by 42 other prominent citizens as well. Ramon Musquiz, a former Coahuila governor and Bear department chief, signed on, as did the conservative mayor, Angel Navarro. José Francisco Ruiz, perhaps the highest-ranking officer in the regular Mexican army from San Antonio, signed, risking his commission in so doing. Even former royalists like Erasmo Seguin and José Antonio Garza, creator of the Lone Star on Texas's first coinage, signed on, as did Seguin's son, Juan Seguin, who at only 26 years old was already emerging as the dashing, if a bit reckless voice of San Antonio's aggressive brand of federalism. Yet it was José Antonio Navarro who actually took the pen in 1832 and drafted the Bear Remonstrance. José Antonio Navarro and his brother, Ángel, the current mayor, had been born to a prominent merchant in town. José Antonio had received a good education by the standards of the impoverished frontier province, traveling to Saltillo for schooling. He was crippled at a young age, and the wound in his leg would never fully heal and would plague him for the rest of his life. Physically limited in a time and place where physicality was a near necessity for men, José Antonio Navarro made up for his limitations with his intellectual vigor. He read voraciously, and, like Lorenzo de Zavala from the previous episode, became enchanted by the liberal Republican movements in Europe and especially in the United States. And he was among the leading advocates of Anglo-immigration to Texas, having closely befriended and gone into business with many, such as Stephen F. Austin and Ben Milam. Navarro's remonstrance ravaged the 1830 federal anti-immigration law. By disallowing legal immigration, he pointed out, the government was only guaranteeing that unregulated illegal immigration by the least desirable types would predominate. The right policy, by contrast, could attract entrepreneurial, well-capitalized Anglos like those that had already introduced new technologies and new energy into the province that frankly was still recovering from the horrors of 1813. Yet the anti-immigration law was really just one of a series of political trends that troubled San Antonians, Navarro went on. Once again, they found their needs neglected and ignored by the new state and federal governments that they had suffered so much to bring about. San Antonians demanded cheaper and more plentiful land and programs to encourage settlement of those lands. They demanded the reinstitution of Anglo-American immigration, praising their industry and their hardiness. They demanded increased representation at the state level, where their representatives had at times been denied their seats. They demanded government support for the public schools that they had pioneered. They demanded proper roads to Santa Fe, El Paso, and Chihuahua to promote their position at the nexus of various frontier trading networks. They demanded that their tax and import exemptions be extended for 10 years to encourage trade. They demanded recognition of the jury trials and due process that they had already started to experiment with. And they demanded the reauthorization of the civil militia, which had defended San Antonio since its founding, but which had been severely curtailed since San Antonio's flirtations with independence in 1813. In short, they were the classic federalist free trade complaints of isolated San Antonio against the distant and different government that frankly wouldn't have sounded out of place in 1813 or in 1778. Yet Navarro and the other signatories of the Bear Remonstrance had to choose their words carefully. San Antonians were well known by now as rebellious and overly belligerent. Implicit in any political protest from San Antonians was the memory of what they had done in 1813 when they had felt their demands ignored, something which Navarro played with artfully. Obviously, the results for San Antonians had been disastrous the last time around, so it was unlikely that they'd actually do anything reckless. But even the thought of having to put down a second such revolt would have been a costly distraction for centralists in Mexico City who were struggling to consolidate their own hold on power in the center. The mere inconvenience for centralists of having to deal with rabble-rousers on the frontier, Navarro hoped, might be enough to win them some of the concessions they sought. 
Additionally, the remonstrance made a much clearer threat to the Coahuila state government, albeit still in a careful, indirect manner. Recalling Erasmo Seguin's and Miguel Ramos Arizpe's understanding at the Mexican Constitutional Convention in 1824, back in episode 10, that Texas's marriage to Coahuila was only until, quote, such time as Texas should be able to figure as a state by itself, end quote, the remonstrance claimed that the Coahuila state government's recent actions had violated the state constitution, thereby, quote, directly dissolving the social compact of Coahuila and Texas, end quote. And there's that Lockean Jeffersonian natural law language that we also saw in San Antonio's 1813 Declaration of Independence. As a result of these actions, Navarro's remonstrance continued, quote, The people of Texas could have declared themselves as in a natural state and could have gone on, therefore, to organize a special government adequate to its needs and social situation, end quote. Two historians that I read here claim that the bare remonstrance was a tame document that comes up short of calling for Texas's independence as a state. They're technically right, but for someone who spent a lot of time dealing with the diplomatic language of Mexican bureaucracy, let me assure you that San Antonians' threat couldn't be clearer, and that their strategy was actually quite clever. San Antonians could declare themselves independent, they're reminding their Coahuilan brothers, only now they weren't, which didn't mean that they wouldn't in the future, however. And then the San Antonians quickly changed the subject and offered solutions to their grievances, demonstrating their good faith, all the while having now claimed for themselves an important prerogative and inviting the centralists in Saltillo to misplay their hand. That is, the bare remonstrance backed the state government into a corner. The relatively new government in Coahuila was in no position to have to put down a rebellion, and it made for bad PR nationwide for a new democratic state to have to force its citizens to accept its legitimacy by diktat. And so, San Antonians' 1832 assertion of a right to declare independence at any time wasn't contested. In fact, it actually seemed to get them what they wanted. Their timing also couldn't have been any better, and probably wasn't an accident. Five days after they published their remonstrance, San Antonio Federalist and father-in-law to Jim Bowie, Juan Martín de Veramendi, became governor of Coahuila y Texas. Suddenly, San Antonio had the best representation that they could have hoped for at the state level, and Veramendi pushed through many of the reforms that San Antonians and other Texans had been clamoring for. He reactivated the colonization contracts, helped set aside state lands to support public education, granted tax and import exemptions, passed a law allowing for jury trials, and began the process of returning defense and law enforcement to local authorities, even creating the local position of Sheriff, a wonderful example, if ever there was one, of how Hispanic and Anglo legal systems were mixing in Texas. Oh, and he recognized English alongside Spanish as an official language of the state. Momentum continued to move in San Antonio's favor when in 1834, a Federalist candidate won the presidential election. That candidate happened to be General Antonio López de Santa Ana, and we'll see in the next episode that he might not have been as Federalist as he originally held himself out to be. But upon taking office, he handed over its actual duties to his genuinely Federalist vice president, who promptly rescinded the 1830 anti-immigration law. At the same time as San Antonians were carefully maneuvering the minefield of Mexican politics, Stephen F. Austin disregarded their advice and began to more openly advocate for separate statehood, for which he would be imprisoned for much of these next critical years. And if you've ever worked in Mexico, particularly with the government, you can appreciate the problem he put himself in when you compare his letters to the bare remonstrance. His language is direct, unequivocal, and sounds way too much like the 1813 San Antonio Declaration of Independence to have been acceptable to a Mexico City official. The bare remonstrance, on the other hand, is nuanced and conciliatory, even as it makes careful strategic threats in the indirect language of the Spanish colonial tradition. The entire episode demonstrates the important role that San Antonians played as intermediaries between old Mexico and the new Anglo immigrants. In the end, it was their political maneuvering that got the response that the province needed and reopened the borders to Anglo immigration in 1834, while still establishing clearly the Federalist principles on which they would not budge. Even Stephen F. Austin from his jail cell in Mexico City confessed, quote, Every evil complained of has been remedied, end quote. 
One of Juan Martín de Veramendi's last measures as Coahuila governor before he, along with most of his family, was struck down by the cholera epidemic of 1833 was to move the capital from Saltillo to Monclova. San Antonians had always enjoyed close familial and cultural ties to Monclova, another frontier outpost in the historic capital of Coahuila. Under the new Mexican constitution of 1824, however, Saltillo had been joined to Coahuila and made the capital. Saltillo, on the other hand, had always boasted closer ties to the center of the country and to the centralist faction generally. And the centralists, controlling the national government at the time, didn't look favorably on Veramendi's relocation of Coahuila's capital from centralist Saltillo to a frontier hotbed of federalism like Monclova. In fact, President Antonio López de Santa Ana, who had already switched allegiances in his heart to the centralist cause, took it personally. Thank you for listening. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe and leave us a review. Because if everyone who listened to this podcast left a review on iTunes or Stitcher, it would launch San Antonio's story to the top of the charts. For more information and old episodes, you can also visit our website at brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering was performed by Stephen Bennett. A special thanks to my friend Noel McKay for letting us use his song, Me San Antonio. For this episode, I'd like to recommend that you read David Wilkinson's novel, Not Between Brothers. Wilkinson has heavily researched the period and really created an intense, epic journey through Mexican and Republican Texas. There's not enough historical fiction about this period, in my opinion, so we need to support this guy. Go to our website, brandonseal.com, for a link. And I'd also like to recommend my other podcast, El Petróleo es Nuestro, A History of Oil in Mexico, also available on iTunes and Stitcher. In truth, it's a political history of Mexico in the 20th century. And the fact is, I think we can learn a lot about the politics in Texas in 1830 by understanding general Mexican political practices of all periods. Listen to it, and if you like it, please rate it and recommend it to your friends as well. 